So we are kicking off a, a brand new sermon series today called Brand New. I, I figured we didn't need to be creative with a title. Brand new series, brand new. Let's just call it brand new. Well, the whole reason behind this sermon series, the whole thought process behind this sermon series, brand new, is this idea that when Jesus came, he did not come to reinvent something old. Jesus did not come to change or, 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 or you know, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tweak this little thing over here. Jesus didn't come to take old understandings of God and old systems of religion and old religious mindsets. He did not come to put forth a new morality or a new religious system. Jesus came to do something brand new in the world. He came to do something brand new in our lives. In Jesus today, 2,000 years after his earthly ministry, Jesus today wants to do something brand new in your life. Whether you're here today and you are not following Jesus and you've never walked with Jesus, or whether you are here today and you've been walking with Jesus for years, Jesus today wants to do something brand new in your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus wants to do something brand new in you today? All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Brand new, a journey through Ephesians. We're going to be walking together through the next four weeks through the book of Ephesians and specifically the first through fourth chapters of Ephesians. And we're going to discover together the brand new that God wants to do in your life. And so the reason we're kind of starting uh, this sermon series, the reason we're starting through the book of Ephesians is because we have a word. And, and one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that I, I have believed in my experience, my four years here as pastor, I feel like every year that I've been here, at the start of a new year, God has given me a new word that has kind of become our focus for the year. It's kind of become the guiding principle that takes us through the year and where we focus our energy when we do sermon series or when we do worship or, or anything we do in the programs and ministries of the church, we're kind of following what's this one word that God has for us this year. And if you didn't know, our word this year was vibrant. And by the way, if you're a guest here and you've never received a gift from us, I want you to know we have beautiful, vibrant shirts. Brandon, you're back there in the living room area. Would you grab one of those shirts and just hold it up for people to see? If you're new here and you haven't got one of these yet, will you please come to our living room area afterwards? We want to send you home with one of these vibrant shirts because we believe that God has put the word vibrant. Thank you, Brandon. Give Brandon, give Brandon a round of applause. He is available for modeling work. You can reach out to him after the service. But we believe God has put this word vibrant on our hearts. And here's why. Because this is where we find the word vibrant in Scripture. This is Psalm 89. And I love the way we see this. This is Psalm 89, 15 through 18. Blessed are the people who know the passwords of praise, who shout on parade in the bright presence of God, delighted they dance all day long, even in a Baptist church. 
They know who you are, what you do. They can't keep it quiet. You get what's happening here. The psalmist is saying when God is at work in our lives, when God is on the move, it gets inside of us. Suddenly we are delighted. Suddenly our mouths are filled with shouts of praise. Suddenly we're dancing. They can't keep it quiet. Your vibrant beauty has gotten inside us. You've been so good to us. We're walking on air. All we are and have we owe to God, holy God of Israel, our King. And we believe that for this community of faith, for this house, God put the word vibrant on our hearts for this year because we believe that God wants more for us than to just simply survive. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through your life and you are living. You're alive. There's breath in your lungs. And yet somehow it feels like you're just surviving. Like you're just enduring. That life is something you're just kind of eking your way through. And God has more for you than that. A life in Jesus Christ is a vibrant life. And it's a vibrant life that is not dependent upon circumstance. It's not dependent upon where things are at with your job. It's not dependent on where things are at with your family. A vibrant life with Jesus is the kind of life where you are full of living power and joy regardless of your circumstance. And we believe that God wants a vibrant life for you. God does not want you simply to survive, to merely exist. God wants you to live a vibrant, joy-filled life. But here's the problem. All things become familiar and then tend to lose their impact. All things become familiar and then tend to lose their impact. And for those of us, especially for those of us who have maybe spent our lives in the church, who have maybe spent our lives around this gospel message, for those of us who have spent our lives hearing about Jesus and who he is and what he has come to do, we've heard this. And somehow what has happened in the process is that the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been lost to us because it's become all too familiar. And as the gospel message has become familiar, it stops being new to us. The gospel message of Jesus stops being this vibrant, life-giving thing. And not because Jesus has lost his power or because the gospel has lost its power, but because we have lost our pursuit of what God has called us into. We've stagnated. We've, we've found a rut and then we've stayed there. We have done the thing that we will naturally do without a great amount of intention is that we will naturally find a rut and stay there. 
It's the reason this, this whole sermon series we just finished, this whole sermon series on emotions that we just finished, the whole idea behind this sermon series on emotions was that you and I are prone to find a rut and stay there because we often will live in accordance with our emotions rather than our principles. We will often live in accordance with our emotions rather than our core values. And if we live based on our emotion, we will wait to feel like we want to chase after God. We will wait until we want to feel like it's time to pursue the things of God. And so instead, we miss out on the blessings that come from a vibrant life in Jesus because the gospel message just becomes too familiar and then loses its power. But here's the thing. The word gospel is a powerful word. The word gospel literally means good news, a good message, a good word. And here's what's tied in that. The whole idea of gospel is tied in to this thing that there's a good thing, there's a good news, there's a good message, there's a good word. But the reason it is noteworthy, the reason it is valuable is because it is news, which is to say it is new it's brand new. It's continually new. The gospel is good news, which means there is something new that is happening. It is a good thing that's happening. It is a great thing that is happening. It's an unimaginably wonderful thing that's happening, but it is also a new thing that's happening. And so we should never get so familiar with the gospel that it loses its power in our lives because the gospel is new Every day. This is what the writer of Lamentation says. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. Do you know that today? Do you know that God's loyal love has not run out for you? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God's loyal love is not finished with you. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. They're created new every morning. The love of God for you, the love of God that wants your best, the love of God that wants you to live a vibrant, joy-filled life, that love is new. It's brand new every single day. They're created new every morning. How great your faithfulness. And this is what the writer of Lamentation says. I'm sticking with God. I say it over and over. Well, why does someone need to say something over and over? Oftentimes, we think about someone who says something over and over, and we're like, man, whose benefit is that for? But if you know what it's like to try to convince yourself of something, sometimes you say something over and over again because you need to hear it. I'm sticking with God. I say it over and over again. Why would the writer of Lamentations say that? Because the writer of Lamentations is writing during a season of the people of Israel where things are hard. They're difficult. It's a very dramatic season the people of Israel are going through. But the writer's going, you know what? I'm sticking with God. I'm sticking with God. I'm sticking with God. He's all I've got left. And I just wonder for us, church, I wonder if we've missed out on the brand new 
blessings of the gospel. Because we're not saying it over and over and over again. I'm sticking with God. Yes, this is the circumstance I'm in. I'm sticking with God. Yes, this is what's happening in my family. I'm sticking with God. He's all I've got left. He's all I've got. You know who I've got in this circumstance? I've got God, and I know his love is new every day. His grace is new every day. The gospel has power every single day. So vibrancy is the word of the year. Vibrant is what we believe God has called us to. And so why start off September with this sermon series? Why start off a brand new school year with this sermon series? Because we believe that we need a reminder. We need a refresher. We need to come together as one body and say, I'm saying it over and over and over again. His love. His mercies, His grace, they are new every day. They're created new every morning. And so I don't have to live based on what's happening in my life. I don't have to live based on what's happening in the world around me. I don't have to live based on the drama that's going on. And we're getting ready to step into another election cycle. And I got to tell you, nothing will make you crazier than an election cycle. Is anyone else ready just to unplug their TV for the next four months? We'll just come back in January. I tried to watch football yesterday, and it was every time they took a timeout, suddenly it was this person attacking this person and then attacking this person, and you want to pull your hair out. And at a certain point, you're just going, okay, okay. I don't have to get sucked into this. I don't have to get pulled in. Why? Because I'm not living based on what's happening in the world around me. I'm living based on the fact that God's love and mercies are created brand new every morning. So what am I living based on? I'm living based on the goodness of the love of God that is brand new for me every single day. That's what God has for us. And so I want to jump in today to the book of Ephesians. This is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus um, it's important for you to know that at the first, in the first century, at the close of the first century, the largest Christian community, the most powerful church in the, the world at the time was not in Rome. Though, though by the middle part of the second century, the Roman church would grow and explode, and that's really kind of where we trace the roots of Catholicism back to. At the close of the first century, the largest Christian community in the world was found in the Greek city of Ephesus. Technically not Greek, Asia Minor, but was part of the Greek Empire. In this city in Asia Minor called Ephesus. It was a port city. It was a rich city. And people from all over the world were coming there. And Paul had helped to plant a church in this community. John, the youngest of the disciples, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the one whom Jesus loved most, the one who writes the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the one who writes the Revelation of John. So the Revelation of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are actually letters sent by John to his community in Ephesus. See, John, the last living disciple, ended his life as the bishop of Ephesus. This is the kind of community that Paul is writing to. 
And so he writes this letter to the Ephesian church to make it abundantly clear to the Ephesian church who they are. I don't know if you had a father like mine. Whenever I would get ready to go out somewhere, let's say I was a teenager, middle schooler or high schooler, I was getting ready to go out to a dance or a party or you know, go hang out with friends that my parents didn't really like. My dad would say this to me, and maybe it's the reason I'm prone to feeling a great deal of guilt even now as an adult, because my dad mastered the way of saying this. My dad would say, hey, Rob, let's be honest, he called me Robbie. Everyone called me Robbie before I was 18. Robbie, remember who you are and whose you are. Remember who you are and who you represent. Anyone ever get that from their parents? Anyone else ever grateful for it? Remember who you are. And Paul, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, is essentially spending an entire letter, an entire book of the Bible, Paul is sending to this community to tell them, remember who you are. And remember whose you are. So today, let's jump right in to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I haven't stopped thanking God for you. I am continually speaking to him on your behalf in my prayers. Here's what I say. So right off the bat, Paul tells us the prayer that he prays for these community of faith. And so I want this prayer to not just be his prayer for the church in Ephesus. I want this to be the prayer that God has over us in this sermon series. Here's what it is. God of our Lord Jesus, the anointed father of glory, I call out to you on behalf of your people. Give them minds ready to receive wisdom and revelation so they will truly know you. Open the eyes of their hearts and let the light of your truth flood in. Shine your light on the hope you are calling them to embrace. Reveal to them the glorious riches you are preparing as their inheritance. Let them see the full extent of your power that is at work in those of us who believe. And may it be done according to your might and power. I wonder if we would just receive that as a prayer over us today. It's so interesting that that Paul prays this prayer, but essentially what Paul is doing here is he's saying the same thing about five different ways. And this is what he's ultimately praying. God, give. God, open. God, shine. God, reveal. God, let them see. If the gospel is good news, if the gospel is new, if the gospel is new for us, then we need to be people who are able to see it. If we're going to understand that God's mercies and love and grace is new for us every day, then we need to be given eyes to see it. God's got to open up our hearts. God's got to shine his light. God's got to reveal truth. God, let us see you. 
And that's the prayer for us in this sermon series. This whole sermon series, brand new, our prayer is this, that God would give, God would open, God would shine, God would reveal, that God would let us see. I love how he says this, let them see the full extent of your power. Anyone feel ready to see the full extent of the power of the living God? He goes on, friends, it is this same might and resurrection power that he used in the anointed one to raise him from the dead and to position him at his right hand in heaven. There is nothing over him. He's above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Over every name invoked, over every other title bestowed in this age and the next, God has placed all things beneath his feet and anointed him as the head over all things for his church. Get this. Paul is saying that God has given Jesus the name above every name and given him position, authority, and power that is above all other. He's given him the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why? For his church. God has done what he has done in Jesus for you. It was for you. This church is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. He goes on, as for you, don't you remember how you used to just exist? How you just used to survive? How you just used to eke through your life in existence? Don't you remember how you used to just exist? Corpses, dead in life, buried by transgressions, wandering the course of this perverse world. You were the offspring of the prince of the power of air. Oh, how he owns you, just as he still controls those living in disobedience. And then he stops here for a second. Because it would be easy for us to hear Paul's words here and go, oh, Paul is speaking to the church, and he's speaking to the church about other people. And can we just be honest? Many of us have grown up in religious environments. Many of us have grown up in churches where a pastor stood on a stage in front of you, or a pastor stood behind a podium or a pulpit and declared to you about all the evil going on out there. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying it's us and them. Paul's going, we're all in this together. How do we know that? I'm not talking about the outsiders alone. We were all guilty. Every single one of us. There is not one human being who is free from sin. There's not one person inside or outside the church who is not guilty. And he says it. We are all guilty of falling headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. 
we all have had our fill of indulging the flesh and mind, obeying impulses. And that was the whole sermon series we just finished. This whole idea of taking control of our emotions because we are emotional, impulsive creatures. Why? Because we were all born as slaves to sin. We are all guilty. This isn't saying, hey, the world is evil and messed up. It's going, no, we, we have all been guilty. And the good news in that is that there is no room for self-righteousness in the church. There is no room for self-righteousness in the gospel of Jesus that is brand new every day. There is no room for self-righteousness. Why? Because we are all guilty. We've all indulged impulses. We've all had our fill. Obeying impulses to follow perverse thoughts motivated by dark powers. As a result, our natural inclinations led us to be children of wrath just like the rest of humankind. Paul's going, look, don't you get it? The gospel message, the gospel message is not about there being good people and bad people. And for many of us, we have struggled with whether or not there was a place for us in the church. We have struggled with whether God could really do something with our lives or not, with whether God could really love us, whether he could really forgive us, because we've gotten wrapped up into this thinking that religion is about good versus bad. And guess what it is? Religion is about good versus bad. Religion is about moralism. But Jesus did not come to make a new religion. He didn't come to tweak an old system of good and bad. He didn't come to just change slightly the way that we viewed religion. Jesus came to put religion in the grave and to say, you can be brought to life by the power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have no hope in religion. We have hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is putting to death right up front. He's going to say, I want you to remember who you are. And part of remembering who you are is remembering that you are not a part of a new religion. It's so much better, so much bigger, so much more empowering than that. As a result of our natural inclinations, we are led to be children of wrath, just like the rest of humankind. But here come the two most powerful words in all of the Scripture. But, We were all guilty. We were all sinful. But God, but God, with the unfathomable richness, something that's unfathomable should never, ever become familiar 
something that's unfathomable should never, ever become boring. Something that's unfathomable should never, ever lose its power. But God, with the unfathomable richness of his love and mercy focused on us, united us with the anointed one and infused our lifeless souls with life. Even though we were buried under mountains of sin and saved us by his grace, he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly realms with our beloved Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king. He did this for a reason. And so at the, at the core of all of our questions, at the core of all of our concern about who we are, in all of our concern about knowing who we are, knowing our identity, is knowing what our purpose is. It's that struggle of trying to figure out, what is my purpose in this world? God, what am I here for? God, why do I even exist? He did this for a reason. You want to know the reason why you're here? You want to know the reason why you have breath in your lungs today? So that for all eternity, we will stand as a living testimony to the incredible riches of his grace and kindness that he freely gives to us by uniting us with Jesus, the anointed. You have purpose in this life. And it doesn't matter what happens in your family, and it doesn't matter what happens at work, and it doesn't matter what happens at school. None of it can undo God's purpose for your life. And here's what it is. What's my purpose? We were purposed to be a living testimony to the incredible riches of the grace and kindness of Jesus. You are a testimony. Your life is a testimony. And look at what he says. So that for all eternity we will stand. Your eternal purpose. Your eternal purpose. Your purpose for the rest of time is to be a living testimony of the kindness and grace of Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. That's what God has called you for. It's what He set you apart for. And for some of us here today, let's be honest, we just feel like, I, I, I don't deserve that. I don't live up to that. If my purpose is to be a testimony, well, man, I, I just I feel like I fail as a testimony. I've spent so much of my life, I've spent so much of my life with Jesus feeling like I wasn't good enough. I've spent so much of my life with Jesus feeling like it was all about trying harder and doing more. But that's not the gospel. That's not good news. That's just another form of moral, religious slavery. You and I 
we're called to be an eternal testimony of the goodness of Jesus. Not because of what we've done, because our purpose isn't to be a testimony of how good we are. Your calling and purpose in this life is not to be a testimony of how moral your life is, of how good you are. That's not the testimony of your life. The testimony of your life is to point to Jesus and say, look at how great he is. It's not about you or me. It's not about what we've done or what we will do. It's about what Jesus has already accomplished. This is why Paul closes this section with these words. For it's by God's grace that you have been saved. You receive it through faith. It was not our plan or our effort. It was not your work. It was not your planning. It wasn't your effort. It wasn't your really great discipline. It's God's gift, pure and simple. You didn't earn it. Not one of us did. No one did. No one could earn it. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing. And can, let's, can we just be honest? That's what I want. I want to I be really great. I want to do something really amazing. I want people to look and go, wow, look at what Rob did. But if that's how I live my life, then I have already received the fullness of all of the blessing and reward and gifting that I will ever get from that. If I live my life for my name, then when my life is over and my name dies, that's all I get. Jesus has something better for us than that. He's got something more vibrant than that. Jesus is going, look, it's not about you doing something amazing. It's about you stepping back and recognizing that what I did was so amazing that it's brand new every single day. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see a story of the prophet Isaiah encountering the presence of God, and the angels are circling around the presence of God, and over and over and over again, they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And every time they fly around him, they go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. The implication here is that the angels, the angels even, have never gotten bored of the presence of God. The angels have never gotten used to the presence of God. They've never gotten so familiar with the glory of God that they're going, yeah, yeah, holy, holy, holy. Every single time the angels see the presence of God, the words are fresh on their lips. God wants us to so encounter his presence, how amazing he is, that no matter what we go through in this life, we would never grow weary of singing of his vibrant beauty. And more than that, 
that his vibrant beauty would get inside of us and change us from the inside out because the vibrant beauty of God has gotten inside of us. And so look at what he says here. You didn't earn it. Not one of us did. So don't go around bragging that you must have done something amazing for we are the product of his hand. And this language here is just showing off. This is how God is at work in you. This is your identity. Heaven's poetry etched on lives. Don't you get that? Your life is not a testimony to how great you are. Your life is the poetry of heaven etched onto your existence. And so we never need to merely survive because God has called us to vibrantly live. Heaven's poetry etched on lives created in the anointed Jesus to accomplish the good works that God arranged long ago. And so as we close today, I want to invite you to see this. I want to invite you to see this brand new gracious identity because God did not come, Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to recreate something old. He came to do something brand new. Now, every religion in the history of the world, every religious system that every civilization and culture has, has had some variation on this theme, some variation on this form, that every religion in the history of humankind has, has gone a little something like this. You are bad. Here is the way to be good. That's, that's the, the simplest way to sum up nearly every religion in the history of human civilization. You are bad, but if you do A, B, C, D, E, and F, you can be good. That's what Buddhism is. It's what Islam is. It's what Hinduism is. It's what Judaism is. It's what, if we're honest with ourselves, it's what the brand of Christianity some of us have been fed looks like. You are bad. But if you'll do this, you can be good. And I want you to know today, no matter what you've heard, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what anyone has ever said to you, that is a lie. That is not the truth. That is not gospel. That is not good news. So what's our gracious identity today? You were not a bad person that God wanted to make good. You were a dead person that God wanted to make alive. To make vibrant. Religion will tell you you're bad, but if you'll only do all of these things, you can be good. And so religion is all about bad people becoming good. But you can become good based on the power of your own self-discipline. You can become good simply based on how many books you follow and how many rituals you go through. But that's not how it works. Because the problem for us is not that we were bad people who needed to be made good. We were dead we were buried underneath a mountain of sin. We were in the ground six feet under. But 
but God, but God raised us up to life with Jesus. Religion will tell you that God came to make bad people good. The good news of the gospel of Jesus, the brand new thing that Jesus came to do was not to take bad people and make them good. Jesus came to take dead people and make them alive. 